Hello and welcome to episode 20 of the Thinking LSAT podcast. In San Francisco, I'm Nathan Fox, and in Washington, D.C., I have Ben Olson. How are you doing, Ben? Doing great. Today on the show, we are going to talk about four uh, LSAT-specific items, and then we're going to have a guest. The LSAT-specific items are, how can you properly vet an LSAT tutor or a course? Are there any red flags you should look out for? That's one. Uh, number two is for improving reading comprehension. Should I be reading The Economist, The New York Times, etc.? For improving logic games, should I be doing Sudoku? Number three is when should I recalibrate my LSAT goals? Like if my goal is to do three perfect reading comprehension passages, uh, when should I up that to four? Or if my goal is to do two perfect logic games, when should I up that to three? The final LSAT-related item that we're going to talk about is uh, LSAT forums and whether it's an effective study tactic to go on to the forums and uh, look for explanations that way. The final thing that we're going to have after Ben and I discuss those four LSAT topics, we're going to have a guest. His name is John Hankey. He's an expert in meditation, neuro-linguistic programming, uh, a whole range of... Um, I guess, how would we describe that? Soft skills that are tangentially related to the LSAT. Meditation is something that Ben and I have talked about on the show quite a lot, and we thought that we would bring in an expert. Um, we recorded that interview in advance, so Ben and I can talk about it a little bit. How did you think the interview went, Ben? Yeah, I thought it went well. I mean, I, I guess I would summarize it as maybe some thoughts on how to reduce test anxiety, which is something that a lot of people I don't think necessarily talk about. Yeah, I, I do think that's a good way to sum it up. Um, test anxiety is something that really does affect quite a few students. So uh, can you use meditation? Can you use self-hypnosis? Um, the, the discussion got, it was pretty wide ranging. And I think some people are going to find it a little bit, uh, what's the word? Uh, uh. Specious, or I was—I <laughs> was going to uh, say fruity. fringe. Yeah, fringe. <laughs> um, you know, I'm a maybe one of the things that I'm makes me good at the LSAT is that I'm really, really skeptical. You know, I, I'm I'm a scientific kind of a thinker, and I just don't really buy a lot of uh, mysticism and religion and things like that. So um, John is almost the exact opposite. He's kind of he's all in on uh, a variety of different kind of fringe areas. And I, I, I think I would invite the listener, I guess, to just sort of take it all for, um, there's, I think there's kernels of truth in all of it. And so maybe just to sort of put your skepticism aside for a minute and listen to what he's saying and try to take, uh, I think you can get something out of it, no matter how skeptical you are. Yeah, I would agree. I think at the very least learning how to relax, that, that can't be a, a bad thing can only be good for, yeah. for the test. Meditation so. specifically, I mean, I am going to get, I, I want to get more into it. I, I need to like make it a really a goal and make it more of a part of my life. Um, have we talked about the Calm app on the show? I've been doing the Calm app. I don't, I don't remember, but to add to that, there's also Headspace. Unfortunately, that costs a little bit of money, but it, it's got a lot of progressive things. It gets harder and harder, or I guess longer and longer as you get better at yeah. doing meditation. Calm is free, and it has the seven steps of calm, which is seven like five-minute guided meditations. 
Um, I would really recommend that listeners download that free app and just check it out. I've done some of the paid stuff as well, and I'm not as impressed with the paid stuff as I am with the free stuff. So mm, interesting. check yeah. that out. And uh, yeah, Headspace, does it also, does Headspace have like motivational stuff where it keeps you, like tries to keep you engaged by giving you little yes. challenges and rewards Yeah, and like stuff? you check things off and if you accomplish 10 in you know, a week or something, you get a smiley face. But it works. <laughs> yeah, yeah, we're we're so simple, aren't we? <laughs> yeah. All right, cool. So um, let's get into these four items here. Um, the first, maybe I'll ask them to you as questions, Ben, and see sure. see what you think. So the first one was, how do you properly vet an LSAT tutor or course? Are there any red flags you should look for that would tell you that the person is a waste of time, a waste of money? Yeah. So. I would want to know if I were taking a class or signing up with a tutor, how long they've been teaching it and not only how long, but how much, how much of their day is spent doing this. Cause you can have people who have done this for several years, but they meet with one person, you know, once a week for a couple hours. And that's not the same as doing this every evening for hours or in our case, full time you know? And so I'd be curious how long they've been doing it. I would also want to know what score they got, frankly, just to say, okay, I I think that's just, it's a necessary condition that they did well. It's not necessarily going to be enough to guarantee that they're going to be great, but it's, it's a bare minimum. Um, What kind of a score do you think the teacher needs to have in order to, to really be a good LSAT teacher? Well, I would, I would say, hopefully above 170, yeah. um, ideally maybe even higher, just to show a certain level of precision, 173 probably and higher. That's the that's the minimum here at least, which is the 99th percentile. Yeah, 173, 99th percentile, that's the, that's the minimum to work for a place like PowerScore or Test Masters or Blueprint. So I think 173 is kind of a, a good floor for uh, score. Obviously, your teacher's score is not the only thing, but like you say, Ben, I do think it's necessary. If they haven't been able to achieve that kind of a, you know, the, a, a very, very high score themselves, then why are they qualified to teach you how to score high? Yeah. What else would you look for in a tutor? Um, I I would ask them for references if if they're uh, you know past people who can you can contact directly and say hey how to go with them. Cause if someone is putting on a face that they have lots of experience and they got a high score and so forth, but they can't really connect you with anybody, yeah. then that means maybe they've worked with people and they weren't happy yeah. or there's just not that many people really there that they've worked with. Yeah. Anything else? Um, those are the main things I would consider. I would probably just ask them questions and see how you feel. If you can, if you're taking a class, it's hard to get in contact with the teacher, but some, some of these places will put you in contact with the the teacher. Uh, If you're doing one-on-one, hopefully you can, can talk to the teacher for just a a little bit and get a feel of if you seem like you have the same personality because you're going to have to work with this person for a while. And although that's not necessarily relevant to their ability to teach the LSAT, if you don't like them, that's not going to go well. Yeah, I I think talking to the teacher is really important. I mean, you can usually tell, or at least I can usually tell within a minute or two, you know, whether I'm going to connect with somebody. And 
so if I was looking to hire a teacher, I think I would insist on talking to them uh, before I started working with them. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I do know that you know, like when I was a power score teacher, they wouldn't, um, they would not let students talk to the teacher before the class started. You just had to sign up for the class. And, oh, really? Yeah, that's interesting. Yeah, um, I wonder if that's changed. Well, yeah, I don't know. I mean, part of the reason is that uh, well, the teacher's an hourly employee and the teacher's not getting paid for that time. So yeah. <clears throat> that's one reason why they don't do it. The other reason why they don't do it is that they you know, frequently have brand new teachers. Teachers tend to not stick around for very long at, at uh, any of those prep companies because they don't get paid well enough to stick around for, you know, to make a career out of it. So when I was teaching my my first power score class, I mean, I was expressly forbidden not to mention to my class that it was my very first class teaching yeah. power score because people <laughs> don't want to pay thousands of dollars and then have a brand new teacher in the classroom. Yeah. So I would, you know, I would try to stick, be sticky on that one. I, I think I would try to insist on talking to my instructor before I was going to shell out thousands of dollars. And uh, yeah, I, I think that the testimonial thing is a really good idea as well. Like, maybe they won't let you talk to the teacher. Will they at least let you talk to a student who studied from that exact same teacher? Mm-hmm. And if not, I think you've got to start, you know, being a little bit skeptical about what you're buying. Yeah. Cool. Um, I, I just want to echo, I guess, your point as well, Ben, about uh, finding somebody who does this permanently or does it, you know, has been doing it for a long time and has been doing a lot of it for a long time. There are a lot of uh, kind of home, home style, homemade, um, test, self-appointed test prep gurus out there. And especially with the LSAT, I mean, I've learned so much over the past I can't imagine. I can't believe how much I learn still every day. How much I learn about the test just mm-hmm. from working with my students. And yeah. if you were one of these people who was like, "Oh, I'm a test prep expert in every test," I I just don't know that you're really going to be doing that great of a job for your LSAT students specifically. Yep, I agree. Okay, um, here's a question I get a lot. I have heard from several sources that reading The Economist, The New York Times, etc., is good practice for reading comprehension. A few others have suggested doing Sudoku in order to improve your logic games. Is this bullshit? <laughs> this is from our uh, friend of the show and listener and intern, Matt, by the way. Thanks, Matt, for putting together this list of questions. These are all awesome. So what I usually tell people is I get the same thing too. It's the Economist, I guess. It's like the it's like the number one pick for mm-hmm. LSAT people. It mm-hmm. Must be on it must be on top law schools or something. But I I feel like a couple things you gotta keep in mind. One, the Economist and the New York Times are not only some of the best pieces of journalism out there, um, but they're just very well. Be, partly because of that, I guess I should say, is that they're very well written. These people are professional writers who write to the masses and make that what they write very interesting even if it's maybe on a dull subject such as the economy for some people and so i feel like if you were to say okay i'm going to read the economist or i'm not going to read anything certainly reading the economist would be better than not reading anything um sort of getting familiar with these issues. But when you compare reading The Economist to all the old LSATs that are out there that 
are deliberately written in a poor style yeah. that uses abstract language and unorganized prose. That's the stuff that you really want to get experience with. And not only when you're done reading it, you then have eight questions that they've kindly prepared for you to test your comprehension yeah, of totally. what you've read. Yeah. Whereas The Economist, you may think, oh, yeah, I totally understood that. Um, but you didn't. So I would say don't waste time there. If you really have time to go read stuff, then just get your hands on older tests. Um, I mean, older tests are still less important than the more recent tests, but if you're looking for lots of material to read and get through, then you can go back to older tests and not waste the current tests and save those for um, you know taking as timed full-length exams. Yeah, I totally agree. I think people reading anything else in order to increase their reading comprehension is probably a waste of time. I, I think it's probably a procrastination technique. Um, you know, I have to write this paper, so I'm going to clean the shit out of my apartment. And I don't, that's sure you're doing something useful, but you're not doing the thing that's the, the primary, most important task in, in front of you because there are 70 something released practice tests out there. That's 200, and 80 something um, reading comprehension passages with, as you say, lots of questions following the passages so that you can test whether you've gotten it or not. Um, I might suggest that people read The Economist after they've done all 280 of those uh, reading comprehension passages. I will say that if, if you enjoy reading The Economist, then by all means read The Economist because in 10 years, if you read The Economist every day, you're going to be a lot better reader just because you've been reading, right? Reading is a muscle and you just have to do it. But if you find The Economist boring, I absolutely would not read The Economist. I think our schools, I think, do people a little bit of a disservice because they don't get people just fired up about reading, period. And really what I, I recommend everybody do is just find stuff that you like to read and then read that all the time. So it doesn't matter. I don't think it matters what it is. Um, if you're a baseball fan, I think you can find all sorts of interesting and compelling sources with baseball news and analysis, etc. And that absolutely can help you in the long run to become a better reader. If that stuff will keep you reading every day, then that's exactly what you should be reading. I'm worried about people who, you know, subscribe to The Economist and then they just have this mountain of economists growing in their corner that mm -hmm. they find to be so boring that they don't ever like to turn the page on them. Yeah. So I guess my my primary advice there, two parts. One, just do old reading comprehension passages and two, read stuff that that you actually find interesting rather than reading something that you think is supposed to be good for you. Um, Sudoku for logic games? I mean, I would say absolutely not. What, what do you think? <laughs> no, I, I, well, I have to agree, but actually I, I don't I have no clue because I've never tried and I've never even played Sudoku. So I, sorry for not joining that game, it's a, but... It's a logic puzzle. I mean, it's, it's like you definitely have to like do process of elimination and kind of figure out like what numbers go where based on... Lim you have limited information and then you're just like trying to solve the puzzle. Mm -hmm. And I guess like if if you like Sudoku, I'm not saying don't do it. I am saying if you are trying to like pick up Sudoku in order to get better at the logic games, that's such a waste of time because you have all of these logic puzzles, the lo the logic games themselves that are out there and available for you 
to study and it's it's an endless it's 280 something games right yeah so nice. have you done all of those have you done them all twice i mean yeah if you have then okay fine go do sudoku but if not then i think go do logic games even uh even if you have done all the games i mean i don't know if i've mentioned this before but my instructor when i was prepping suggested that we write our own game and every time i suggest this to my class they laugh it off but it totally made a difference for me by working backwards going from the answers back to the original rules that i wrote you know writing the questions and then trying to come up with answers for that it it and i at the time i just remember thinking oh these games make a lot more sense now i understand what they're trying to get me to do yeah that's that's interesting um i've never thought about that but yeah. Okay. So I think we're both on the side of uh, no Sudoku, and uh, generally just study real LSATs. That's the the nicest thing about the LSAT is that there's so many of those release practice tests. They don't mm-hmm. hide the ball at all. If you do and redo and redo the old tests, you're going to know exactly what's coming on the upcoming test. Yep. Okay. Moving on. Um, when should I recalibrate my goals? This question was prompted by a conversation that I had with uh, my guest Ebony a few weeks ago, where her goal was to her current goal was to get through twenty logical reasoning questions. Um, if that's your short-term goal, or if three perfect reading comprehension passages is your short-term goal, at what point do you decide to change your goals? Well, I would say as soon as you reach them, push it a little bit further and say, maybe we can't go from three passages to four passages, but maybe we can do three passages and answer the first two questions in the fourth passage. Yeah, get the main point of the next passage. I think that accuracy really needs to be the guide. Um, So, yeah, you know, if your goal is 20 logical reasoning questions and you're getting 19 of them right, I do think that that's the point at which you could probably start pushing for question number 21. Yeah. Um, the problem, most people, I think, don't have a high enough standard for accuracy. So most people would be more like, well, I'm doing 20 questions, but I'm getting 12 of them right. Mm-hmm. And for mm-hmm. that student, I, I actually think they need to lower their goals. They need to not be doing 20 questions, and instead they should probably be doing like 15 questions. Exactly. The accuracy needs to be on the logical reasoning. What do you think? Eighty-five percent of the questions you attempt. Yeah, I think roughly around there. I mean, it's going to be it's going to jump up and down a little bit every time. And if you did twenty questions before and you got eighteen of them correct, next time you may be shooting for twenty-one and end up doing twenty-two. But then you know it, it's not going to be a perfect science. But roughly speaking, of the ones you do, you need to get. 85, 90% of them correct before trying to push yourself to do more. And if you're not there, you need to slow it down. Um, almost, well, in most cases, slow it down and say, okay, I'm going to shoot for 15 yeah. and try to get 80, 90% of those correct before moving on. Yeah. I had a student complaining to me last night because she was only doing three reading comprehension passages. And she's like, I just, I got to get to that fourth passage. I just, I got to, I got to get there. I got to get there. And I said, well, uh, how how did you do on the three passages that you did attempt? And she's like, good, good. Um, yeah, you know, I, I only missed one or two on each of those passages. And it's mm-hmm. like, 
If you missed one or two on each of those three passages, there's no way you should be looking at that fourth passage. You're 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 going to have a much quicker route to improvement if you just stop missing the one or two that you're missing on every passage that you're doing. Yeah. Not to recover ground that's been covered over and over, but I can't stress how important it is that students focus on accuracy because if you focus on accuracy, the test will start to seem easier to you. If you focus on accuracy, you'll learn faster, the test will start to seem easier, and then eventually you'll be able to go faster. Yes. But you go faster through accuracy. It, it makes it so that effortlessly you can just cruise right through the test uh, instead of you know this striving for speed with low accuracy. It's just, it's just a harder way to improve. Yep. Okay, last one. Is it an effective study tactic to go onto LSAT forums and explain answers uh, or look for explanations on discussion threads? What do we think about this? So I would say yes and no. I would say yes, it's effective to try to explain your answers. I'm not so sure about on discussion threads. I when I, I actually hadn't even thought about this before until you asked about it. I would The reason I say this is that, first of all, when people email me questions, I will ask them to explain as much as they can. Like, I understand why D is wrong, and I understand why C is wrong, but I'm, I'm between A and B, and here's why I think B is right, and here's why I think A is wrong, or whatever. I, I try to get them to explain as much as they can. And when they do so, oftentimes their explanations are correct. It, as they are writing it, they, they start to figure it out. And sometimes I get emails from people who say, look, I was going to write you, but as I wrote, sat down to write it, it all kind of yeah, right. came together. Yeah. And so I, I think the idea of writing out an explanation, um, you know, you don't want to make it perfect or waste time trying to make this polished, but just kind of verbalizing what you think the rationale is, is very helpful. My only my only hesitation, I think discussion forums could be good because you're going to get feedback on your explanation, but sometimes that feedback, I mean, who knows, could be wrong. You know, like, oh, well, this answer choice was wrong for this reason, and then you, you take something away from that discussion that you shouldn't have. So I'm not too sure about what to think about that last part. Yeah, I, I'm very skeptical of LSAT forums, top law schools forum, etc. I mean, there's a lot of good on there, but there's so much bad on there. And mm. I get, That's where we're getting the economists, right? So Yeah, or just, you know, advice like, oh, pick the easiest logic game and do that one first. Scan through the four logic games and find the easy one and do that one first. Or it's just so much bad information out there on the test. You know, only ever take the LSAT once. Law schools are going to average your LSAT score, so you should only take the LSAT once. So there's just so much of that shitty information out there. So I think you got to be very skeptical of what you read on the forums. If the question is, can I learn by writing explanations, I think, yeah, absolutely. I mean, get yourself a study partner or, yeah, go online and try to help random people on the Internet. They're asking you for an explanation for a certain question, and if you got it right, and if you understand it, and you can write an explanation for them, I do think it helps you to crystallize your understanding of the concepts and the techniques by uh, by writing an explanation or by explaining it to someone else. So I do think that that's a great um, technique. Yeah, and even for very easy questions, like I find myself in class as I'm getting ready to explain to everyone why answer choices are wrong 
even on easy questions that I've seen 10 times before, sometimes I'll have insights and I'll be like, oh yeah, it's also wrong for this reason, you know? Yeah, totally. I mean, I force my classes to ask me questions in the first 10. Uh, we focus a lot on questions in the first 10 in the logical reasoning section because um, those are the most important ones to master. They're the most repeatable ones. And yeah, I just think you can learn a lot from really getting, you know, to, for like you say, Ben, not just having one reason why an answer is wrong, but having three reasons why an answer is wrong. Mm-hmm. So even if you're already scoring 170, I think you can learn a lot from diving deep into some of those easy questions that you find in the first 10. Yeah. Cool. All right. Well, um, thanks for that discussion. I think we're just about ready to go get our guest. Um, anybody who would like to contact me, my email address is Nathan at foxlsat.com. Ben is Ben at strategyprep.com. We love to hear your feedback. We love to hear your questions. If there are any topics that you'd like discussed on a future show, go ahead and email them in to us or uh, drop a comment on our website, thinkinglsat.com. And uh, we would love to hear from you. Anything else, Ben? No, that's it. Thanks. Great. Okay. Thanks, everybody. Talk to you soon. Our guest today is John Hankey. John is on his website, johnhankey.com, listed as a certified hypnotherapist, master practitioner of NLP, and a registered 200-hour yoga instructor. He's joining us from Berkeley. How are you, John? Doing very well. Hi, Nathan. Hi, Ben. Hi. So the purpose, John, for bringing you on the show today is that Ben and I have both started talking about the benefits of meditation for our LSAT students, and we realized that we were both complete novices on the topic. We wanted to bring on an expert, and uh, you're the guy. So um, can you just maybe give us a little bit of introduction to what you think benefits meditation might have for a test taker? Yes, of course. I've been a performance coach for about four years. I started studying self-hypnosis, neuro-linguistic programming about six years ago to deal with stresses of my own when I was on Wall Street in 2008. Um, And it ultimately made sense because I shifted over from a following the breath practice into what's called a body scan meditation. And in a body scan meditation, you, you listen to a recording often in the beginning as training wheels. And the recording usually says, relax the top of your head. Relax your ears, relax your nose, your throat, your shoulders. And it moves you down your body from head to toe. And then back up from toe to head. And th- so my teacher gave me um, about a six-minute tape. It was very, very straightforward. And then I would listen to it a second time. And I noticed that the second time that I listened to it, my body would be more relaxed. And the term is actually called progressive relaxation because the more that you practice it, the more deeply that you are able to relax. So I also learned that if I'm talking to myself in my head and not fully focused and engaged in my present moment experience, I'm exacerbating tension in my body. 
So a busy mind and tension in my body are essentially the same thing. They are the same processes, which process, which is not being present. And those are the traces of evidence left in two different realms, a racing mind and a really tense body. So when I shifted over from a from the belief that, that my mind needs to be rigidly still and instead focused on training my body to relax, it gave me the mind quieting effect that I'd been seeking. And I guess the benefits for a test taker are, are obvious there. Um, exactly. It's you're going to, once you start to engage in a progressive relaxation practice, and again, you can start at five minutes a day, um, you're going to notice that a much higher um, percentage or, um, yeah, like percentage of your thoughts is going to be um, engaged in the material that's in front of you. So, um, and then from there, I, you know, I started getting trained in the technique of driving the power of meditation into very specific behaviors that you're having. So, um, a very, very well-known technique on the market is called emotional freedom technique or tapping. And essentially what it does is it teaches you how to release issue-specific triggers, just responses or life contexts in which you are tensing yourself up and not fully able to control it. So, so like relationships, test-taking, sugar cravings, right? Any sort of habit that we have that is not fully optimal is tension and stress based. And with techniques like EFT, um, you know, tapping or self-hypnosis, which I can teach as well, um, you can overcome these triggers in a very, very short period of time. It's not very much work at all. So, Do you have any uh, specific audios that you would suggest people can go find online and say, okay, this is what I'm going to start doing five minutes a day. I can use this audio as a guide. Yes, exactly. So if you go to my website, johnhankey.com, and you go to services, there's a drop down that says the science of flow. And the science of flow is the CD that I came out with. There's about 10 different tracks on it. Um, and if you listen to track number four, which is the body scan meditation, that'll teach you how to relax progressively deeper and deeper and deeper, and essentially gives you the secret of meditation very easily, very empirically. Track, track number eight is about behavioral software. Behavioral software is a very, very important point because it essentially teaches us that optimal learning comes from being in a state of deep, deep, deep relaxation. If I'm tense, I'm not going to be in a state that's optimal for absorption or for um, absorbing new information. Right, So the behavioral software track teaches you to go, okay, there's this area of my life where there are things for me to do and perform and learn. And in order to practice, by practicing being, being very, very relaxed in that context, I'm paving the way, setting the foundation for peak performance. Okay, so you're talking about two different things here that people can practice I guess on a daily basis one would be learning to relax and then the other would be learning to relax so that you can learn 
Yeah, learning to infuse a sense of relaxation into one specific area of your life, whether it's a relationship or test taking or um, you know sugar cravings, etc. So, and then another possibility is just to have a session with me. I work with clients over the phone, over Skype, in person, and uh, I've worked with about dozens. I mean, you know, probably you know, in the hundreds, really, actually, like 100 or 200 people with respect to um, performing. So I had a client in New York, and she was getting really uh, nervous during her auditions. She was, uh, you know, seeking to become a full-time actor. So we did two sessions over the phone. They were about 40 minutes each uh, before a big audition that she had. And um, one was before round one. The other one was before round two. And she nailed both. She essentially went in um, and we had cleared away a lot of the stress and tension that was getting in her way. And so then afterwards, she was able to go, oh, this is my voice. This is how I, I'm, I'm much more self-expressive in my audition because I'm not as stressed and beating myself up or getting in my own way. Um, and then test takers, I've done a lot of ACT work and I'm definitely looking to branch into LSAT work because it's obviously the same work. And... Um, I'm averaging, you know, my students and I are averaging almost a one point increase out of 36 on the ACT per hour of work. So if a student is, is making 30s on the practice test for the ACT out of 36 and 27s on the real thing, you give me three to four hours and they will have those points um, almost fully recovered, if not fully recovered. So I'm, I'm curious, uh, there's... <clears throat> whether someone listens to your CD or works with you individually, there's a there's time right between when they work with you and then when they go take the test or do the audition or whatever. And I'm curious, does does listening to the CD um, then tell you what to do when you're about to go into the test? Does it does is there something? What what happens right before they go take the test, or is this something that changes your I don't know your feeling towards the test all the time? So there's not nothing anything you need to do special right before you take it. All you got to do is show up. You've already done the the preparation, the internal work, the internal clearing, as they call it. Um, so you've already cleared up your reactions that you, that would have come up for you. Um, during the test, you cleared them out beforehand. So you just show up and your mind just stays totally clear because your body is now more relaxed. And I'll give you an example. So um, both of you and everyone on this call, just close your eyes. Imagine that you're biting into a tart, juicy lemon. Make it real. Make it very, very real. Taste it. Imagine it. Open your eyes. If you really get into the visualization and the imagination, you'll notice that you started to salivate, right? That salivation is your subconscious mind. Your subconscious mind is just your body and how your body responds to where you put your attention. So in one-on-one -on -one coaching sessions, I will have my clients, I'll have the student enter a deep state of relaxation in about 10 minutes, you know, pretty darn deep. Um, and then I'll have them imagine that they are taking the test. And as soon as they imagine that they are taking the test, their body tenses up involuntarily because their subconscious thinks that they're actually taking it right now. And 
then we use progressive relaxation, which is the secret of meditation. We use progressive relaxation mindfulness techniques to teach them, okay, where do I experience test anxiety in my body? What am I doing to myself? What nerves am I pinching, literally? How and where? And then eventually they relax to a place that's deeper than those self-imposed blocks. They relax to a place to where they, they are no longer able to tense themselves up as they were before. So for someone who maybe doesn't have access to your CD, they're somewhere else or uh, can't get on a call with you, do you have any uh, tips for what they can do to start gaining this you know, sense of relaxation and decrease their anxiety toward the test outside of those resources? Um, yeah, that's a good question. The type of meditation that I talked about was called a body scan. So if you Google body scan meditation, you should, you should gain some access to um, how, to, how to learn how to set aside some time a little bit each day. 10 minutes is a great start to getting better at being more focused in the here and now by learning how to relax your body more fully. Um, progressive relaxation, alkalize your body. Um, you can look up emotional freedom technique online. Um, it's, it's a huge, huge concept, which is we can create issue-specific change from the comfort of our own home, right? As soon as I begin to mentally address an area of my life, all of my self-imposed limitations with respect to it arise in the moment. That's a really, really big piece. Um, so wait, sorry, just to clarify, what you're saying is if you try to visualize whether it's the test or whatnot, in that moment, then you're creating that situation which you can then try to address. Exactly. By relaxing more fully into your body and becoming aware of where you tense up and where you can relax. So this, this kind of sounds like what maybe top athletes do, I imagine. I feel like I've heard this. I'm not a top athlete, so I have no idea. But I feel like they try to visualize, right, performing the whatever it is that they're trying to do. Is this related? It's exactly the same thing. Sports psychology, peak performance. That's, yeah, that's my whole methodology is that. Um, and I was actually having a conversation with a friend of mine who's um, a headmaster. You know, he was, he was my old dean in high school. Now he's a headmaster out, at, um, out on the East Coast. And he was on the Olympic um, high jumping team. And he and his, you know, some of his friends listened to a lot of relaxation techniques because they knew that if my muscles are tense, I'm exerting massive amounts of effort to perpetuate that level of tension in my body, right? And that's precious energy that I actually need to jump higher. So... He, you know, he got so good at it that he would go and get massages and he could intend his body to relax almost to the point where it felt as if it had been massaged. And so the body worker was going, okay, there's really not a whole lot left for me to do. So that is, that is the future, you know, that's what I call the future of physicality. That is where we are going as a culture. Um, and how human growth looks and feels is that we gain more conscious control over our bodies and therefore our minds. Same thing. Exact same thing. Interesting. Yeah. Nathan, any questions? 
Um, I guess I would like to know, you know, how much, I think one of the barriers that stop people from doing any meditation at all is this, uh, they think that it's going to take them way too much time. Right. I want to know if there is a recommended amount or if there's a minimum amount or, you know, how, how much do you think it takes, how much of a meditation practice do you think it takes to see real benefits in your life? Um, I would say about, yes, yeah, start at 10 minutes a day. If you start at 10 minutes a day of, you know, doing the body scan that I talked about, so I would listen to a five to six, you know, five minute track twice a day, right? And ideally back to back. So do it back to back. Just listen to a tape that, that guides you to relax the top of your head all the way down to the bottom of your toes and takes five minutes to do it and then do it again. And the second time you'll notice, oh yeah, I'm deeper this time. And um, when I teach people meditation, my my formal instruction for the secret of meditation, for how to get it, for how to get the underlying concept that every technique that is at its core is to anchor your awareness in the gravitational pull of relaxation in your body. I'll say it again. Anchor your awareness in the gravitational pull of relaxation in your body. And let's actually go ahead and just do that now. Everyone just kind of close Wait. your eyes. Yeah. So sure. John, that, I have to admit that sounds a, a little funny. I don't know what you mean by the gravitational pull. It, it kind of brought me to an idea of the earth and then you're talking about of your body. So do you have a, another way of describing that or? The best way for us to, to describe it is actually just to do it. So I'm really glad you asked. Um, let's actually do it. So everyone on the call, just close your eyes, separate your hands, get in a nice space, feet firmly on the floor, spine straight, but not rigidly so, comfortable. Close your eyes and just relax. Let your eyelids become very, very heavy. Let your neck become very long and straight and relaxed. Feel the muscles in your back. Just notice any muscles in your back. Relax your hands. And now I'll just walk you down your body very briefly. Notice your nose your cheeks, relax your jaw and your mouth, your throat, and allow this feeling of relaxation to spill over your shoulders, down your arms, elbows, forearms, and into the palms of your hands. Pinkies, ring finger, middle, pointer, thumb. Feel your chest, relax your chest, 
and your heart beat, lungs, belly, pelvis and hips. Relax your thighs and your knees all the way down to the bottoms of your feet. And now let go of doing anything at all. Do absolutely nothing. Don't even focus on your breath because that's doing something. And eventually what you'll notice is you become aware of where you're doing something, where you're talking to yourself in your head, where you're tensing up your body. And then your body lets go. Your body stops doing the tension-based internal dialogue that it was perpetuating. And by now you've built up a little bit of relaxation momentum, so to speak. Your body is starting to get a taste and a feel for this deepening progressive relaxation. Like the flow of water. And thoughts are like these tiny little dams that for a second make the water stop and just keep allowing the water to flow. Keep allowing your present moment experience to unfold to blossom. Keep relaxing. Keep softening. It's an internal softening. And you may notice your breathing becomes ever so slightly deeper, that more space arises in your body and in your mind. And of course, a deepening level of relaxation. Ground your awareness in the gravitational pull of relaxation in your body. Your body has this draw, is drawn to relax more fully. And then slowly begin to come up. So did you get a feel for the progressive relaxation technique? Yeah. um, I mean, I think the, the concept makes sense. I'm not totally sure I understand fully what the gravitational pull is, but um, I, I can see why when you start to relax, you can feel where you're tense. I like maybe maybe momentum makes more sense to me than gravity. Does that does that make more sense to you, Ben? Uh, I'm not sure actually. What do you yeah? What do you mean by momentum? Like that that it's a that it's a building up kind of a thing. That once you get it going, it keeps going. Oh, I see. Mm-hmm. I like the momentum uh, part that you brought up oh. as well. Because when I said that word, I felt a lot of like yeah, this makes sense to people. This is something that really makes sense. Nathan, do you have any other thoughts about the exercise? 
Oh, I, I really like it. I mean, every time I've done any little meditations, I've all, I've, I do kind of naturally um, sink into it and I can feel almost immediately that it could be very beneficial. So mm -hmm. yeah, I think that was really helpful. Um, John, I'm looking at these recordings that are on your website. Uh, you've got 10 of them, they're $1 each. You were mentioning a couple of them earlier. I just wanted to know how long are these? Each one is about five minutes, maybe maybe six. So it's um, there's there's five, and, and again, this is the science of flow, which is on johnhankey.com, and there's ten tracks total. Five of them are actual exercises. So about every other track is is an exercise to do, and it's immediately followed by an explanation of the theory of the practice. Um, you know, as you can see, number. 10 is like an affirmations track, how to speak in a way that creates behavioral change. So if I say, oh, I got this test coming up and I know I'm just going to get tense, that moment was an opportunity for me to speak a new response, a new choice into my nervous system. I take tests and I am calm and relaxed. And obviously, you know, and, and it sounds hokey, it sounds whatever, I studied hypnosis for four years under masters and then came upon the affirmation about a year a year and a half ago and I said this this basically is the power of self-hypnosis distilled into its simplest and purest form which is when I take tests I feel calm and relaxed and every time I say it I relax more deeply than I was able to before and the degree to which we relax dictates how easily we allow new belief systems and new responses to be embedded into ourselves, into our bodies. So that's what track 10 is about. And um, yeah, that's, that's basically... I like that idea a lot. I mean, for a long time, when my students have, have said, uh, I'm not a good test taker, I, you know, because that, that's something that I hear a lot. I, I'm just, oh, I'm just not good at these standardized tests. And I immediately invite them to sort of reprogram themselves with with a different thought. I guess that's exactly the same thing as what we're talking about. You're you're exactly right. I mean, I I cannot be in the now. I can't be present and reference some I am not a good test taker. Because for me to to consider and believe I am not a good test taker, I must be in my head. I must be remembering sometimes and making pictures of and movies of past tests that I've been taking and then be caught up in those and then assume and fall victim to the illusion that because that's how it happened 20 years ago, that's what's going to happen next week when I take the test. It's just totally egoic. It's totally unnecessary. And there's tension at the root of those language patterns of those belief systems that when unwound will lead to higher levels of performance. And I, I read recently that the idea that your mind can't really tell the difference between what's actually happening and you imagining something happening. Yes. So I guess part of the purpose of all of this is to, is to imagine yourself doing well on the test. Imagine yourself feeling calm on the test because in a way if you if you just imagine doing well on the test your brain thinks that you actually did 
do well on the test or that you did remain calm during the test. Exactly. And if you don't do that, let's say you're like, you don't take the time to imagine, what are you going to be doing instead? What you're probably going to be doing with that mental exercise that you just talked about, the imagination exercise, is be analyzing the past again and going, oh yeah, I'm, I'm worried that I'm going to get tense again. Take that worry and transmute it, sublimate it into, into imagining. Into, I mean, imagining is a profound, profound, um, you know, like personal growth um, technique that I use all the time. And, and as I do it, I, I literally feel my body entering a different state. It's a more right-brained state. So imagination is an extremely healthy, um, extremely healthy exercise to engage in. And especially you as a tutor, you can help, and I'm sure you already do, as you said, help your students do this. By using phrases such as, as you settle into the exam, you'll find a lot of the information that you studied comes back to you. Um, rather than telling a student what not to do, like, don't worry, don't get tense, you know, yeah, yeah. you know, just say, as you, or you don't, you know what I mean? And there's, and, and then as you say that, you know, and you know, this goes for all teachers, as you use these positive words, Feel how they feel in your body. Feel your own words as you are imparting them upon your students. And the more deeply that you relax as you deliver this wisdom, as you deliver these instructions, the more that they will relax both in the moment and during the test. Awesome. Well, um, I think we lost Ben, so probably <laughs> the, the technology didn't keep up with us today. Um, John, I want to say thanks very much for coming on the show. This was great. Um, I'd be interested in talking to you about possibly creating an LSAT-specific meditation or uh, maybe a series of, of meditations that are LSAT-specific. Maybe that's something that we could um, collaborate on. But... Um, for now, I think I'll just say thanks again. And uh, is there anything that you'd like to plug anywhere in particular that you'd like to send listeners who want to learn more? Um, yeah, I have a radio show with Voice America. So if you go to voiceamerica.com, which is the worldwide leader in internet talk radio, and then search my name, John Hankey, you'll find my radio show, which is called The Power of Presence. And it, it airs every Thursday at 11 a.m. Pacific, and then the recording keeps going on. After that, obviously, this week's show is with David Allen, the worldwide leader in productivity and organization. Um, and That's great. We talked about David Allen, I think, on the very last show. I'm a Inbox Zero guy myself and definitely into the getting things done idea. So that's really cool. Uh, where can they find that again? VoiceAmerica.com and then search John Hankey, H-A-N-K-E-Y. And uh, they'll find the show The Power of Presence. And then David and I are talking tomorrow for almost an hour on how to help people infuse the getting things done methodology into their lives. Oh, so. great. I'll definitely check that one out. All right, John, thanks again for coming on the show. Have a good one, Nathan. Thank you.